There we go. Is that good? Um, well, a little over a, a year ago, uh, I was in Zambia. Uh, we have some, some missions partners who were there, and so I was there with another uh, brother from, from my church in Charlottesville. And this was uh, just you know, right after the most recent presidential election. And, you know, it, it was funny because almost every Zambian I would meet and they would sort of try to make polite conversation for a little bit. And then they would just be like, okay, I'm sorry, like, you just got to tell me about the election. Uh, they were fascinated by American politics. In fact, you know, that was just on the, on the TV. I mean, that was just all, all that was on there. And, and uh, they were definitely more knowledgeable about American politics than at least I am, probably than, than most Americans. Um, and I bring that up just, to, just as a reminder uh, that there's a real sense in which the eyes of the world really on, are on us uh, in America. You know, we, we live in uh, the most prominent, powerful, and prosperous nation in the world. Uh, you know, we are, we are surrounded by wealth and affluence and, uh, you know, just worldly opportunity, and, and there's real allure in that. You know, we, we grow up with, you know, pursue the American dream, uh, and, and, and there is an allure that we face. Uh, and then at the same time, um, we live in a nation uh, that has a future that is, probably feels very uncertain to many of us. Uh, you know, we just had one of the most controversial presidential elections. I, I think our nation feels deeply divided. Uh, there, there's things like the, the racist rally just right up the, the road in Charlottesville where I live uh, just this past uh, August. Um, you know, there's looming threat of, you know, things like nuclear war. Um, and, and then in our society, you know, there's shifting values. There, there's been the rise of things like homosexuality that have come on so quickly. Um, and, you know, share a, a biblical perspective. I mean, we see these things as, you know, eroding the very God-ordained fabric of society. And, and I think, rightly, that makes us wonder, what's coming? You know, where will this lead to? Um, and, and connected with that, we as Christians, you know, who, you know, once America is regarded as, you know, Christianity is the dominant religion, and, and more and more, I think we even feel some, something of a threat of persecution. You know, we, we've heard about uh, the, the Christian baker and, you know, how, you know, that was, they didn't want to bake a cake for uh, a homosexual wedding and how this has gone up to the Supreme Court and it seems like they're ruling against this baker. And there's things like that that really, uh, I think, challenge our sense of religious liberty and uh, can be concerning to us. Um, so we're living amidst a combination of great prosperity on one side and yet this unsettling future on the other. And the question I want to ask is, well, how then uh, are we supposed to live as Christians? You know, how, how can we be faithful in our context? Uh, and so with that in mind, I'd like to turn your attention to Amos chapter 9. So the book of Amos in chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at the very end of the chapter, verses 11 through 15. But while you're turning there, I want to give a little bit of uh, background and introduction 
uh, to this book to set the context really familiar with offhand. It's probably been a while. Um, so the, the situation here, uh, Amos is a prophet who was sent to the northern kingdom of Israel during the days of Jeroboam II. Uh, so this is, you know, sometime 790 to 750 BC, uh, King Uzziah is reigning in Judah, the southern kingdom. Um, and this is a period of Israel's history when, uh, though the, the nation is divided, there, there's actually quite a bit of prosperity. Um, you may know that was true for Uzziah, um, who, you know, when he dies toward the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. And a little before that, here's Amos in the northern kingdom, who also experienced a lot of prosperity. There, there really weren't any, you know, imminent political threats at this time. Uh, you know, things looked good in some ways, and yet at the same time, there's a lot of ungodliness. There's a lot of immorality in the nation. Uh, we know from Amos's uh, prophecies, there, there were things like idolatry, so the people offering, in chapter 5 he mentions Sikuth and the star god Kiyun. Uh, there's sexual immorality. Uh, in chapter 2 he mentions a father and son going into the same girl, so, so this kind of just ungodly sexual immorality. And then most of all, what Amos focuses on is that there is oppression of the extravagant wealth. You know, he talks about drinking wine from bowls, you know, reclining on couches of ivory. Uh, and in the midst of this extravagant wealth, uh, they are just grinding the faces of the poor right into the ground. In fact, they're even gaining wealth by, according to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, selling the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. You know, they're, they're trampling the heads of the poor into the dust of the earth and turning aside from the way of the afflicted. So, so just flagrant um, abuse and oppression. And in spite of this evil in the, in the nation, the attitude of the people is that of complacence and being smug. You know, they're, they're, they're prideful. Um, they, God has sent them prophets, and they've threatened the prophets, including Amos, saying, go away. You know, we don't care what you have to say. Uh, they are, as, as chapter 6, verse 1 says, they're at ease in Zion. And then in, if you've got to chapter 9, if you look in verse 10, they have this attitude of disaster shall not overtake or meet us. You know, we, we're, we're fine. Uh, we, we're unconcerned about these things that God says he may do. Uh, so God's message to them through Amos is really a message of overwhelming judgment. Uh, and, and the whole book, I mean, he starts with saying, you know, I'm going to judge the other nations. And then, he turned, and then he mentions Judah, and then he turns to Israel. And he just starts saying, uh, in chapter 4, he talks of the people being dragged off to exile with fish hooks, which is referring to what the Assyrians would literally do to people as they took them away as slaves. Uh, in chapter 5, God says that the people will be literally decimated. He says, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left. And then, it, at the end, in chapter 9, uh, we see here this picture of God standing by the altar uh, of the temple. And, it, and it, Amos writes, chapter 9, verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, 
And he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of the people. This is a picture of God, you know, presumably this is an angel, telling the angel, just crush the temple and on top of the people and kill them. Uh, and he goes on for there saying, you know, those who are left, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. No one shall escape. And I mean, it's just this devastating judgment. Now, in the face of that, imagine that, that you're there, you're listening to Amos deliver this prophecy, and you're one of the faithful Jews. You're a Jew that is repentant. You know, you're someone that, that remembers God's promises to Abraham, and, and you, you have placed your hope in that overwhelming judgment. You can imagine what, what, what you would be thinking. Well, has God forgotten his promises? I mean, is God just done with us forever? Perhaps we have just, you know, exceeded the limit of his grace and now it's the end and God is just going to utterly wipe us out completely. Uh, and here at the very end of the book, we find God, you know, giving this reassurance to the faithful to those who hope in His mercy, to, to those who are repentant, who will return to Him. And He is saying, I haven't forgotten my promises. You know, I am faithful. And these things will come to pass. He, he's reaffirming what He said before. And, and He describes these promises with language that you'll see. It's, it's, it's like they could almost taste it. Right? He, he gives this vivid depiction of the kind of prosperity and the kind of uh, blessing, abundant blessing that he has for the people. Um, and it's like he's saying, you know, don't be allured by the present worldly prosperity that's being offered. And don't despair when judgment comes. Listen to what I have for you. Uh, so listen now as I read Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. God says, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild, rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, there are three aspects to this promise. Uh, the Messiah, the ingathering of the nations, and then everlasting Edenic prosperity. That is, Eden-like, the Garden of Eden, that kind of prosperity. So let's look at, at each one. First, uh, the, the promise of the coming of the Messiah in verse 11. So God says, 
in that day, that is, after the, these judgments fall, um, there's a coming day when I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up his, its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So he mentions the, the booth or the tent uh, of David. Um, <clears throat> And I think this is referring to the, the Davidic dynasty. And, and what God is saying is, you know, you would expect, okay, David, his dynasty would be represented by this palace. It's this little hut that you would have out in the field where the, you would sleep when you're out working. You know, and, it, and it's not just, it's a, it's a booth, it's a hut, it's a, like a tent, and it's broken down. You know, David's dynasty is there in ruins. And yet God is saying, I will raise it up. I will repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as, as in the days of old. You know, so that right now this kingdom which is divided into the north and south, you know, this kingdom that is in all this sin and ruin and alienation from God, God is saying, no, I am going to raise up the dynasty of David. Right? There, there will be, and of course that means there is going to be the, the promised son of David, the, the Messiah who's going to come as that king who is going to reign forever. Uh, you may remember God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, when, when God told David through Nathan the prophet, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Right? And so, of course, Solomon was a great king, but he failed. There is another son of David who is coming, who will reign forever, the Messiah. So that's promised in verse 11. And then in verse 12, we have the promise of the ingathering of the nations. Uh, so God's purpose in you know, raising up uh, this... Messiah from the line of David and, you know, restoring the kingdom of his people um, is not just for the Jewish people. You know, it, it, God's purpose is to include and, uh, the, the remnant of Edom and of all the nations, as it says in verse 12, uh, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, uh, who at this time would be their enemies, and all the nations who are called by my name. Now, at first, you might hear that, and, and we kind of think, well, you know, in a sense of like, they're going to conquer all our enemies and, and, and crush, you know, the nations under our feet, and, and we will be the, the dominant nation. But when you look more closely, it says the remnant of Edom, and then it says, in all the nations who are called by my name. You know, so these are not, this is not referring to, you know, those people who are going to remain enemies of God. Uh, the, this is referring to Gentile peoples who are going to be brought in, attracted to worship Yahweh, uh, who are going to be called by the name of Yahweh, uh, who are going to come willingly under the lordship of this Messiah. Okay, so you have the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the ingathering of the nations, and then thirdly, there's this promise of everlasting Edenic prosperity. Uh, and look. So he says, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And, and I think this is a note, you know, that not necessarily the same time, this, this coming prosperity is not necessarily going to happen at the exact same time, but it's going to result from, right? The Messiah is going to come, the nations are being gathered, and then the days are coming following that when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And stop and think, okay, what does this mean? Well, you know, the reaper is out there gathering in the harvest. The plowman's the guy coming out to plow up the field to prepare for the, the next planting, right? And so what it's saying is there's going to be such abundance of fruit and harvest that they're still out there gathering in the harvest when it's time to plow again. They're going to be bumping into each other. Uh, that, that's the, the kind of abundance this is talking about. And then it says, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Right? So they're, they're still treading out the grapes from the harvest, and it's already time to be out there planting seed for the next year again. Um, and then it says, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. You know, and, and now I'm not an expert in gardening, but as I understand, mountains are not exactly the ideal place to try to plant things. That's why you've got to do the terraces and all that. And this says the mountains are going to drip sweet wine. And, and then the hills will flow with it. I mean, just this like a river of abundance. Um, it says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And, and what this is talking about is, you know, in, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, there were all these curses that were threatened for disobedience. And among those curses were things like, you know, you're going to plant vineyards, but you won't get to eat of the fruit. You're, you're going to build houses, but you're not going to get to live in it. And here, what God is saying is the days are coming when those fortunes will be reversed, when they will be restored, when those curses of Deuteronomy will be eclipsed by blessing uh, from me. And he says, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Right? You're not going to be cursed anymore. You're going to be blessed. And, and this, I think, is also, it's reminiscent of Adam in the garden. Right? The, the curse of work. You know, the toilsome labor when, when we are working by the sweat of our brow, you know, and that being reversed. I mean, think for a moment, probably all of us have experienced, you know, times when, you know, we had a, a project and, and it was a lot of work and it was hard, but it, it came to fruition, you know, and you built something and there's just that sense. What a joy to be able to, to work hard and then reap the fruit of your labor. And yet, how as a result of sin in the world, how many times do we labor and receive nothing for it, right? It, it bears thorns and thistles, you know, whether, whether that's, you know, the heartbreak of parenting, you know, and, and children that, that grow up and they, they go astray, you know, that's, that can be part of it. Whether it's at work, you know, and, and you know, you're involved in whatever kind of occupation, you know, and, and disasters strike, things happen, 
you know, you're, you're out working to, to garden and then the, the, you know, the frost comes or the, the blight or mildew or whatever and you, receive, you reap nothing. And there's this promise God is saying that will be reversed and it will be like it was for Adam in the garden uh, when he could work and enjoy the fruit of his labor. Um, and then finally in verse 15, uh, there's the promise that this state of being is not just going to be temporary. It's not going to be lost again. It's going to perpetuate forever. God says, I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Right? This, this might bring to mind you know, Psalm 1, right? that, that tree that's planted beside the rivers of water. of Eden before there was death, right? When there was just perpetual life in the garden, in the presence of God. Um, so, so that is the promise that God is holding out for this faithful remnant. You know, there's, there's a coming Messiah, there, there will be the ingathering of the nations, and there will be this everlasting Edenic prosperity. So those three things. But now we should ask the question, well, what does all this mean for you and me? What does this mean for us? Um, well, first of all, we, we can look back historically and we can see God did bring about the, the judgment on his people that Amos threatened he would. Uh, and then we can look back and we can see that God did send the promised Davidic Messiah. Right? That Jesus Christ, you know, that lion of the tribe of Judah, that root and branch of Jesse, you know, the, the son of David, has come. He, he was born. He, he lived a perfect life in obedience to the law in our place. He died on the cross a substitutionary death so that we could be forgiven. And he has been raised and exalted to God's right hand as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Right? And we're also probably well aware that coinciding with that has been the ingathering of the nations. Right? Jesus himself said um, after he was resurrected, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right? This, this gospel is not just for Jewish people, it's for all of us, and we can praise God for that because that gospel has reached us saved. And, and if anyone is here that uh, doesn't know Jesus Christ personally, you need to know that this invitation is for you, and you can believe in Christ and be saved, uh, that he has come so your sin can be forgiven and you can be reconciled to God. Um, but one of the things about the promises of Amos chapter 9 that uh, you may not know is that in Acts chapter 15, uh, at the Jerusalem Council, uh, James actually quotes this passage. So just to jog your memory a little bit, uh, the Jerusalem Council happened because there was this dispute over whether or not Gentile converts needed to keep the whole law, needed to keep the Jewish law. So you got guys like Paul and Barnabas out there, they're sharing the gospel, and Gentiles are coming to faith. 
And then you have some of the Jewish Christians who are saying, wait a minute, you know, you need to be circumcised because God said you need to be circumcised. You know, you, you need to eat a certain way and, you know, live a certain way um, so that you can be a real Christian because you need to become Jewish. And, and so this dispute comes before the church in Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas speak and then Peter steps up and, and he testifies about what happened with Cornelius and how to his shock and amazement, you know, here we have this uncircumcised Gentile that, you know, God sends an angel that sends Peter to share the gospel with him. And when Peter's sharing the gospel, all of a sudden, you know, they receive the Holy Spirit and believe. And they're like, well, I guess we need to baptize them. And so Peter shares about that. And then you have James, who is probably in a sense the most conservative you know, the, the most Jewish of them all. You know, he's the one that these Judaizers are probably looking to, as you know, James is the one to be circumcised. And James stands up right after Peter speaks in, in Acts chapter 15. And he says, what Peter has just said is something with which the prophets agree. And then he recites Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And he says, this is what Amos was talking about. Amos said there was going to be a Messiah and that there was going to be this ingathering of the nations. And therefore, we shouldn't trouble the Jews, we shouldn't trouble the Gentiles who are coming to God. Right? We don't need to require them to be circumcised, require them to keep the law. We can ask them to do, you know, he lists a few things to do for the sake of fellowship with Jews so there's not unnecessary offense. But he makes very clear that they, through faith in Christ, are now full, full citizens of the kingdom. Right? They are fully accepted through faith alone. Right? The, the kingdom of God has been reconstituted by Christ through the apostles, and it's no longer an ethnically bound Jewish kingdom. It no longer functions under the old Mosaic He's saying we are now under a new covenant and under the law of Christ. And the reason I bring all that up, why is that important? Well, when we understand the way that James is interpreting these prophecies, and he's saying, yeah, this, this is referring to Christ and the Christ's kingdom, and the Gentiles are now part of that kingdom, what that shows us is that these promises, this promise of this abundant life, that's our inheritance in Christ. These are our promises. These are not just for the Jewish people. They're for you and me as well. Um, you know, th this picture of overflowing abundance, that is our heavenly inheritance. That's a picture of what it will be like on the day when Christ returns, when we are with Him. Right? It's a portion of the picture that then gets, you know, shared more fully in Revelation chapter 22, right? When we continue to hear about this Eden-like language, right? With the river of life and the tree of life on both sides with the 12 kinds of fruit coming month by month, uh, when there's no more curse, no more death, no more crying, no more sorrow, 
when the throne of God will be there and the glory of God will give this light to the world, uh, when we will worship and serve the Lord and see His face, even reigning with Him forever. Brothers and sisters, that is our heavenly inheritance. And what all this means for us now is that we need to savor that promise. Right? I mean, we need to, when we pray, when we talk, when, we, when we're laying on our beds at night, we should be thinking about the kind of inheritance that God has for us in Christ. About the life and the abundant blessing that God Like the Israelites of Amos' day, here we are in this prosperous but ungodly nation, right? I mean, just like them, we are going to face temptation toward worldliness. Right? We're, there's, there's the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the, the, the American dream that comes calling. You know, those who want to promise your best life now. And, and behind all of that, is Satan's lie. You know, just like God, just like Satan said to Eve in the garden. Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? Is God really so restrictive? You know, is God really so, you know, frugal and restrained in the kind of blessing he's willing to give you? And the reality is the exact opposite. I mean, think of Eve in the garden. God said you can eat from every tree except one. Right? And here we are, if we meditate on the kind of prosperity and life and blessing that God has for us in Christ, you know, the lie that God is restrictive is not going to deceive us. Right? When we, when we think about this, you know, we begin to understand, no, God is the kind of loving Heavenly Father who delights to give good gifts to His children, who rejoices over us to do us good. Um, you know, he is a God who withholds no good thing uh, from his people. And, and so God is not being restrictive, um, but we have to trust his timing. Right? And as we meditate on this, we understand that, that God is saying, trust me. You know, the days are coming. When you, the plowman, shall overtake the reaper. When the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. You know, I have this ever, this abundant, eternal, heavenly inheritance stored up for you. And just like God shared that promise with the Israelites in Amos' day, he's sharing that with us so that we will think about that and meditate on that. And so that, you know, the, the, the things that the world offers... Um, to try to allure us, we'll see, no, these are just nothing but cheap imitation. You know, these things can't satisfy. These things don't compare with the kind of life that Jesus has for us. And then on the other side, um, you know, there will also come times when we face the temptation toward despair. Right? There will come those hard times, just like the, the Israelites, where God is saying, look, there's Judgment's going to fall because there is great sin, you know, and um, in the same way, judgments will, will fall and kingdoms will rise and fall, 
You know, and, and we are going to face hard times. There's going to be, you know, wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There, there's going to be trials and tribulations in our lives. And in the midst of that, you know, we're going to have the lie from Satan, it's not worth it. not really going to come through. And the more we meditate on this blessing and the generosity of God, and, and we think about the reality that God has always proven Himself faithful. And He has always said, yes, the time is coming. And that may mean waiting, but He has always come through. The more we will know that, yes, there is blessing coming. And this blessing is so great that whatever trials and difficulties we face now, they are like light, momentary afflictions compared to this eternal weight of glory uh, that is waiting for us. Uh, so brothers and sisters, you know, in light of this passage, uh, let's be reminded God is faithful, He is wise, He is in control, and He is generous, and we can trust Him. Right? He has done what He said, and He will do um, all that He has said He will. Uh, so let this everlasting Edenic prosperity, this, this kind of abundance, uh, be our hope. Uh, and let's savor that promise so that we can be faithful here and now. Let's pray. Father, you have given us such precious promises. We are in awe of... Christ and of the eternal life we can look forward to with you in your presence, free from all sin uh, and all pain. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us to savor that promise now so that we might live in hope of that, so that we may be faithful now, not allured uh, by the temptations of the world and not discouraged or uh, led to despair by trials, but that we would persevere with faith and hope in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.